0: Thanks, Simon. And uh, it's great to be here with you, everyone, this morning. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and for your word. We pray that as we turn to it now, that you would uh, enable us to understand what you're saying to us and live out the great hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I thought we'd uh, kick off this second semester by looking at that uh, great hope that drives our ministry and I reckon is just so pastorally relevant in our world, which is so, I think, aware of our fragility and our subjectivity to death. And so we're going to look at uh, Jesus' resurrection uh, today, and then in two weeks' time, um, today, verses 1 to 35, and then two weeks' time, verses 36 to 53. So years ago, I did something that you'd think would be pretty straightforward, but ended up being pretty complicated. I bought a car. So I signed the papers, and I was told that I could pick it up in a week. But a few days later, I got a call from the dealer, and he was very hesitant with me on the phone, and he said... Mr. Wu, your car has arrived, but I've just seen the number plate. It's WIJ444. I'm so sorry. Would you like us to get you another car? Now, if you're not familiar with Chinese culture, it's pretty superstitious, especially about numbers. Okay, so like 13 for us is unlucky, Uh, we'll ramp that up a couple of thousand times. That's four in Chinese culture. See, in Chinese, the word for four... Uh, sounds almost exactly like the word for death. Eight, on the other hand, sounds like prosperity, fortune, all the good stuff. And so, you know, if you're driving down the road and you see a car with a number plate 888 and you look in, you can pretty much tell it's going to be a Chinese driver. (laughs) Probably related to me. (laughs) Uh, But you never see a Chinese person driving a car with a number plate 444. 444. Except me. <laughs> yeah. no, I told the dealer, nah, give me that one. Uh, I really wanted to roll past all my Chinese aunties and uncles, you know, arm um, hanging out the window, doof-doofing, in the deathmobile. <laughs> now, it's dumb, isn't it, right? All superstition is dumb. To think that not putting the wrong number on your car can ward off death, it's absurd. And yet, something understandable about it, isn't there? Because uh, you'll know Chinese people aren't the only ones afraid of death. I think deep down we all are. Um, have you ever had one of those near-miss, you know, I could have been gone like that moments that replays in your head and just makes you shudder? Um, I certainly do. And if you stop and dwell on it, it's, it's quite terrifying, isn't it? And rightly so. Because as we know, death is the penalty for sin. We reject the God who gives us life and joy, And so we're now engulfed in death and fear. Uh, I think there's a PowerPoint, sweeto, and there's a couple of verses that I thought I'd just pop up uh, that make this very clear to us. The first one is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7, where death is called the shroud that covers all people, the sheet that covers all nations. And then in Hebrews 2.15, we humans are those who all their lives were enslaved to their fear of death. So God makes it very clear to us that we are subject to death and it should frighten us. But he doesn't tell us this to make us feel depressed or like there's no hope, just the opposite. God makes us face death because he wants us to see just how wonderfully he's answered it for us in Jesus' resurrection. So let's turn to Luke 24. I've got two points. First, the resurrection shows Jesus has defeated death. It's from verses 1 to 8. And then second, the resurrection means true hope has come for us, verses 9 to 35. And then we'll finish with what it means for ministry to death-bound people. So first, the resurrection shows Jesus has defeated death. Now, our passage starts, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. So Jesus was crucified on the Friday, and it's now dawn on the Sunday. And so the women go to his tomb with these spices that they prepared in chapter 23, verse 56. And the point of these spices was uh, basically to mask the odour of the body as it started to decompose. So back then, uh, tombs were basically carved out in a rocky hillside, which you then cover with a stone. And as you can imagine, above ground, hot Middle Eastern sun, not sealed that well. Uh, Things could get pretty smelly pretty quick. And so the spices... We're like a bit of, I don't know, first century Airwick or Glen 20 or something. Um, But of course, they're more. They're a sign of love and respect for the dead person and for the living, a way to get closure. A final act of mourning, like we might drop a rose on the casket. In other words, this wasn't just a sign of care. It was a sign that to them, it was over. Like the rest of us, death had apparently claimed Jesus as its own. But there is a surprise waiting for them. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And their reaction was, well, it would have been like anyone's. My NIV has in verse 4, while they were wondering about this. But actually, um, it's much stronger in the original. So I actually went and visited my grandpa's grave a little while ago, and I reckon if I'd rocked up and his coffin had been dug up and his body missing... I would have had a stronger reaction than, hmm, I wonder what happened here. <laughs> All right, it literally says, they were at a loss. Uh, first year Greek students, apereo, right? Comes in handy at least once in your life. Uh, and, and it means they were like stunned mullets, which you absolutely would be if something like that happened. Now things get even more bewildering in verse 4 when angels show up. But the angels show up to tell them They're looking for Jesus in the wrong place. Verse 5. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. You see, what the women were doing, while it was done in love and care, was totally inappropriate. Why? Because they still thought the wrong Lord was in charge. Jesus is not in the grave where death rules... He's risen. They came with spices to try to futilely mask the stench of death, only to find that death itself has been completely blown away. There is a new master in charge. And in fact, Luke hints at that in verse 3, when he says they didn't find the body of not just Jesus, but the Lord Jesus. And in the rest of the passage, we see that it is his word, not death's that is true and has power verse 6 remember what he said while he was still with you in Galilee the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men be crucified and on the third day be raised again so verses 1 to 8 is really trying to tell us that Jesus by his resurrection has the last word on life and death he has mastered death And he has shown that by his resurrection to life again. Brothers and sisters, never forget this. Christianity is not just a tight set of clever ideas that best explains the world. And we are not saved because of our exegetical precision, our comprehensive biblical knowledge, or our theological robustness. Now, don't get me wrong, all vitally important and absolutely worth every drop of sweat and mental strain. Study hard while you are here, but never forget, those things are not why you are ultimately here. You are here because something bewilderingly wonderful has happened that should leave you at an utter loss. A man has conquered death and is alive forever. You are here simply because Jesus Christ is Lord. So I'm going to try a little call and response thing because, you know, we're Anglican here. Um, So I'm going to ask a simple question, why are you here? And you are going to answer, because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. We're going to do it three times. Okay, ready? Ready? Why are you here? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Why are you here? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. One time with feeling, brothers and sisters, why are you here? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Absolutely. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if that dynamic and energy resounded through the ministry and character of every person who studies here at More? And praise God, I reckon it does. But we can sometimes be a bit of a conservative bunch, can't we? We could afford to open it up a little bit more and be a bit more transparent and expressive in our conviction and joy that we serve the risen Lord, couldn't we? I know I could. How about you? Why are you here? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Well, the second thing this passage tells us is that Jesus' defeat of death is not just a happy ending for him, it affects us all because it means real hope has come to the hopeless. So verses 9 to 24 records the two disciples' journey, and really it's a journey of hopelessness. It's quite a strange episode, the whole thing is quite strange, where Jesus meets them but they don't recognise him. And again, here the Greek actually comes in handy, Uh, because it literally says their eyes were held closed or blinkered. So Jesus stops them from recognising him and only gradually opens their eyes to him. And why? I think it's because he wants to draw their pain out into the open so that he can remove it properly. A little bit like a good massage, I guess. Uh, It's got to hurt before it gets better. But... He does want to give them hope. And hope is such an important thing for us, isn't it? And so Martin Luther King Jr. once said, uh, if you lose hope, you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of it all. But hope is also pretty fragile, isn't it? And it's so often for us disappointed. So uh, Nietzsche once said, hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the torments of man. And there is a truth in that, isn't there? One of the cruelest jokes you can play on someone is to raise their hopes and then dash them and leave them feeling destroyed. Uh, I remember one college mission meeting a lady in a nursing home, and uh, when I asked her how long she'd been there, she began to cry. And she said uh, when her husband died, she had wanted to stay in their home. Her son had told her, don't worry, mum, we'll just move you into the nursing home temporarily, sell the house and extend our place so you can live with us. So she moved into the nursing home. He sold the house, took the money, disappeared, and just left her there. And she said, my son has made my life a cruel joke. It's heartbreaking. But in many ways, such a common experience. To have your hopes brought crashing down, it's one of the most awful experiences in the world, isn't it? I'm sure, like me, at, at, so to some various degree, you've had that happen to you. Uh, you might even feel that towards God. Things that make you go, God, what are you doing to me? What are you doing to those I love? Do you really care? Or are you up there laughing at me? Well, the disciples thought Jesus' death was God's cruel joke on them. So verse 17, he asks, what are they talking about? And they just stand there, faces downcast, and then they say, verse 20, we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. You hear the hopelessness in their voices. But also notice what their hope was about, because that's actually the key to what Jesus is doing here. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, the redemption of Israel was the great hope of God's people in the Old Testament. They'd been slaves in Egypt and God powerfully redeemed them through Moses. Now they were slaves to the Romans and God promised he'd again send a savior. And that seemed like Jesus. He'd brought them together, preached the kingdom, fired up their hopes and said, leave your families, your jobs, come and follow me. It's all gonna happen in Jerusalem. But when they got there, seemed like nothing but failure. There was no revolution, no victory over the Romans. In fact, Jesus just gave himself up to be arrested, tortured and executed. And with his death, his disciples also gave up. But look at Jesus' response in verse 25 as he now begins to bring hope out of their hopelessness. He says, "'How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken.'" Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He says they were fools to have given up hope because the same Bible they read that spoke of his redeeming glory also said he first had to suffer and die for that glory. And of course, that's because the very term redemption means paying a price to buy something out of someone's possession. Now, the disciples were expecting a powerful military liberation from the Romans, but Jesus says he came for a far greater rescue from a far greater problem than even the most oppressive human power imaginable at the time. See, how can you redeem someone from death, which is the penalty for our rebellion against God? only by the Lord Jesus dying in our place and giving us life. And so Jesus says his death on the cross is not the end, but the beginning of hope for us. And his resurrection isn't just a happy ending to the story. It actually changes the very way the world works. So let's go back to those verses we looked at to begin, but this time in their full context, because they're not only about death, but actually about the fact that death has been defeated for us. Isaiah 25.7 On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what Jesus' resurrection does. It breaks death's hold, not only on him, but on us. So we might truly have life and hope. Uh, Now, I wanted to explore, I've been thinking a fair bit about the anatomy of hope, um, and I want to explore particularly um, how this applies to us Uh, in the area of our integrity and honesty as ministers. Uh, But I think for the sake of time, I'll just uh, try and give you a bit of a condensation here. Um, And I was just thinking that uh, what this passage, I think, helped me to reflect on and be challenged by is to make sure that we do all that we can to make our lives adorn the gospel of the hope of resurrection rather than undermine it and make our Lord's wonderful offer of eternal life into a cruel joke by the way we live and I'm sure you are very aware and I know having chatted to some of you that you have experienced how awful this is when it happens in our circles but let me challenge you on that front because I think this area is so critical for the current and future health of evangelicalism and evangelical ministry let me put it this way Are you working as hard on your character and integrity as you do on your studies, so that nothing undermines the gospel that you preach? Are you working as hard on your character and integrity as you do on your studies? Uh, Actually I just had a a quick thought there that that challenge could work on two levels, but I hope you get what I mean. (laughs) Uh, let, me, let me finish up. Uh, and finally, what does this mean for us who minister to death-bound people? I think very simply it means we preach hope. Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, was once asked what the main thing in a successful business was. And his famous answer is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Cliché, but right. And not just about business. So often in life and ministry, uh, we get distracted, don't we, from what is truly important. So Luke 24 gives us a great opportunity to cut through all those distractions and refocus on the main thing about life, God, that we are here to live and proclaim. I mentioned going to visit my grandpa's grave. Uh, Going to the cemetery is a pretty sobering experience. Uh, You know, looking over thousands of gravestones, as far as the eye can see. uh, It's certainly worth doing as people headed for ministry. Very morbid, but it does bring reality home. In fact, uh, some of you may know our former vice principal, Colin Bale, actually did his PhD on World War II gravestones because they testified so clearly to people's true values and hopes or lack of hope. But just think, in, in 50, 100 years' time, We, and pretty much everyone we know, will be dead and have their own gravestone. And so what will be written on the gravestones of the people to whom you minister that you will have had a part in shaping their lives? Uh, In fact, what will be written on your own, do you think? Uh, Let me read out a couple that I found from the cemetery when I visited. In loving memory, a husband, father and grandfather who cares for and provides for us, a humble hometown caretaker, a kinsfolk provider and a friend to those in need, a quiet achiever and builder of a successful enterprise, born 6th of March 1918, died 12th of November 1993. Now, I I think in many ways there's something deeply admirable about this headstone. It speaks to this person's character and his family's love, and yet... I also found it deeply sad that even for all that, and with his achievements, at the end of the day, the last word on his headstone still belongs to death. Born 6th of March, 1918, died 12th of November, 1993. How about this one? Lonely is the home without you. Life to us is not the same. All the world would be like heaven if we could have you back again. And when I saw this gravestone, I got really churned up inside because this is exactly the hope Jesus came to bring us in Luke 24, that one day this will be our reality. And contrast, those with another headstone that I saw, that which consisted of two simple lines. Though he be dead, yet shall he live. And then Jesus' words from John, I am the resurrection and the life. Brothers and sisters, ministry is complex, ministry is hard. We need to engage with people in the cut and thrust of the whole of life. And we need to be equipped to bring God's word to bear and show his love in every aspect of our engagement with people, both in the big things and the mundane, ordinary, everyday things. I find Luke 24 so helpful because it sets crystal clear before us the ultimate goal that should integrate and drive everything we do in life and ministry. And that is to preach hope to those bound by our fear of death in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So make sure the resounding chorus of your life and ministry is to preach hope in Christ. Brothers and sisters, why are you here this morning? Because Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Never let that go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our faith is based around the fact that leaves us stunned and at a loss that your son is risen from the dead. And please enable that, to empower us in everything we do, to proclaim true hope in him alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.